Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. I'm Melena Rice. I'm a fifth-year PhD student at Yale University, where I study the dynamics of planetary systems. And I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and their host galaxies. I'd like to welcome you to episode 49, A Fine Dining Experience. My name is Will, and I will be your server today. (laughs) First of all, let me tell you about our specials. For an appetizer, we have a plate of questions served hot. (laughs) For our first course this evening, we have the chef's special star cluster soup made with a base of aged hydrogen and whipped up with turbulence. In the soup, you might find some dense stellar cores. As an entremet to cleanse the palate in between courses, we're offering a refreshing sound prepared by our guest chef who trained on one of the icy moons of Jupiter. Ooh, is that a hint? As tonight's main course, (laughs) we're excited to offer a seared planet featuring a crisp outer crust and gooey molten interior. And for dessert... A juicy discussion with just a hint of spice to give it a little kick. We hope you enjoy. Could I see a list of wine pairings for this meal? (laughs) What do you think this is? (laughs) Trained on the icy moons of Jupiter, huh? (laughs) (laughs) So we'll begin with your appetizer. Monsieur and Mademoiselle, a plate of questions. So what are some of the common mechanisms between star and planet formation? So there's a lot in common between star and planet formation. You have accretion, inflows of material, and you probably have a disk around the system in both cases as they're forming. So as a star forms, you have a protoplanetary disk. And in planet formation, we believe that you probably have a circumplanetary disk. Uh, So actually, there have been some candidate circumplanetary disks found in the PDS-70 directly imaged system. There are two major ideas for how planets form. So whether or not star and planet formation are similar probably depends in different ways on which of these mechanisms you think is more likely for a given type of planet. So there are some planets that are perhaps more likely to have formed through gravitational instabilities in a protoplanetary disk. So material gravitationally collapses in a way that's maybe a little bit more similar to the way that we get stars. Uh, So you have kind of a lot of gas being accreted in a very small amount of time onto a core that turns into a planet. Or you could also have pebble accretion, where small pebbles are accreting onto protoplanets over time, such that they build up and eventually accrete enough pebbles to become planets. And if those planets become massive enough, they can also undergo runaway gas accretion, but you don't need a disk instability to create that type of planet. It's more just you have a core that is constantly accreting material over time. So I'd argue that star formation is kind of similar to the gravitational instability scenario. So if you have 
in overdensity in the right conditions, you have a more massive body that grows. That's kind of what you get in star formation as well. And the processes are both pretty messy. So that's another similarity where forming stars are ejecting material in the form of protostellar jets. Uh, whereas forming planets are probably also tossing out a lot of neighboring disk material that might form, for example, interstellar objects. I actually had a paper about this a couple of years ago. So hmm. both of the processes, I'd say, are very messy and have a lot to do with gravity. And <laughs> so those are kind of the main similarities. I want to go back to the point with the comparison between planet formation and star formation with the relevance to disks. So mm -hmm. a star, there's the collapse of this massive molecular cloud of dust and gas, but it all doesn't collapse perfectly toward the exact same point. And because of conservation of angular momentum, the system starts rotating. And so you end up with this central protostar that starts accreting. And then this disk supported by gas pressure of the, all the material that didn't make it into that central body. And Melanie, you mentioned gravitational instability within a disk could potentially form a planet in a similar way. I think the way that I was approaching this was in thinking about the disk in being central to the formation of the planet, but it kind of being an incidental byproduct in the formation of a star. So you have this cloud of mm. dust and gas in the star. Interesting. And then that the leftover material from the star formation becomes the planet, but then the planet potentially could form its own disk, which then becomes maybe a moon or a smaller planet surrounding, orbiting it. And so just kind mm -hmm. of having that hierarchy about how important disks are to it, I think is relevant here. That's an interesting way of thinking about it, because if you take the solar system, it's like 99.9% .9 of the mass is in the sun, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So the planets are sort of an afterthought of leftover stuff. But if you think about it from angular momentum, it's actually mostly in the planets. So mm -hmm. unless you form planets, you can't probably get a star, right? Can you ask it one more time? By conservation of angular momentum, you probably can't have a star form without planets because it'll spin too fast. It won't be able to accrete all of the gas unless there's some other way of you know, getting rid of the angular momentum. So I know that the formation of stars itself for a long time has been a tough problem to resolve because planets are not. You think you would have too much angular momentum to collapse a body into that small amount of volume. And I think the mm -hmm. way that a lot of people have been approaching it now is through the transport of angular momentum along magnetic field lines. So with the consideration Ooh. of magnetic fields to star formation, you're able to resolve a lot of the angular momentum issues that would normally prevent you from compacting material into a star. Right. And that's actually a major difference between star and planet formation because planets also have magnetic fields sometimes, but they're not nearly as strong as the ones that stars have. So... Mm -hmm. Right. Stars have, you know, these these jets of material being shot out from their magnetic mm -hmm. poles. Mm -hmm. And as far as we know, there's nothing so dramatic for planet formation, although planet formation in action hasn't really been observed so directly just because it's on a much smaller scale. What's also really interesting, Malena, you mentioned both of these processes being kind of messy, creating lots of debris. You can have things that are ejected from these systems uh, in the formation of different bodies. I actually found a paper that, this is Gom and others in 2013, where they proposed you might not even need a disk to form a planet at all. So oh. they reported on the existence of clumps of molecular gas, they called them globulets, around stellar nurseries, and they argued that these globulets could potentially 
compact, collapse, and grow, and form gas giants that are free-floating rogue planets out in the universe, entirely separate from uh, a star that it orbited around. That's so interesting. Uh-huh. So they just form by themselves in molecular clouds. That is the thought that they're a byproduct of... So gas initially clumps, forms a bunch of stars in mm-hmm. a cluster, but then there are these yeah. clumped pieces of gas that are left over from that process that aren't massive enough to collapse into a star. They might collapse by themselves into rogue planets. Wow. Mm. So in that way, that would be a really similar mechanism of formation. Exactly. Right. I don't know how popular that theory is. (laughs) Now let's move on to our next question. What are some of the most different mechanisms between star and planet formation? I mean, you both mentioned magnetic fields. That sounds like it's pretty different. Is there anything else worth mentioning? I think I would highlight the theory of core accretion that Malena already alluded to. You start with a rocky core that then grows, it becomes self-gravitating, and then can create this kind of gaseous envelope surrounding it, and you can form a planet that way. That's completely distinct from a way that you could potentially form a star. Hmm. I want to emphasize that planet formation is not a solved problem, right. and I don't think that star formation totally is either. It's not, as I'll talk about in my astrolite. We don't really know exactly right. how planets right. form. So this is kind of a difficult question because we're comparing, you know, a mechanism that we don't really understand to another mechanism that we don't really understand. Mm-hmm. Um, with that said, there some of the problems that exist in planet formation, I think, don't necessarily exist in star formation. So, for example, it's hard to get pebbles that are larger than roughly a meter size because they start breaking apart instead of accreting to get bigger. So there are certain barriers in the sizes of these planetesimals that you can get where you need to continually accrete material as opposed to having it break apart. Stars are mostly gas, and so because of that, you don't really have to worry about having them break apart in the same way that you Mm -hmm. have to when you have solid material like you do in planets. Yeah, Melina, I'm so glad you brought up that point, the issues in planet formation and star formation, because another problem in planet formation in the formation of gas giants is the question of how do you form an object that large within around a couple million years, maybe five million years made out of gas because the central protostar within a protoplanetary disk is constantly streaming out stellar winds that push out all of this gas from the disk, a lot of the gas. And so the thought is if the dissipation timescale for that happening is around a couple million years, then how are you able to grow a planet that quickly with that much gas before mm-hmm. it all disappears? You don't have that problem with star mm-hmm. formation because you just have all the gas to begin with. You have the central protostar that is able to accrete gas immediately. Interesting. Yeah. And yet it must be done. We see the young planets. Somehow they're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's move on to our first course for this evening. Alex's bite about star cluster soup. <laughs> it is yeah, delicious it's my favorite recipe <laughs> so this is the recipe for star cluster soup written by h perry hatchfield and it's based on a paper by grudick and others that was just submitted this month to the monthly notices of the royal astronomical society makes sense this month it's a monthly notice and <laughs> by the way i just want to make the note i thought this astrobite was beautifully written in the way that they set up the introduction and explained the results so i definitely mm. recommend uh, taking a closer look at it 
they went down the route of comparing star formation simulation to a recipe for soup. I really liked that, so I'm going to continue following that thread. So I want Will and Melina, you to just close your eyes for a second, okay? Okay. Imagine this okay. scenario with me, okay? Imagine being born. Day one, you open your eyes. <laughs> okay. That's intense to imagine. Uh... <laughs> the first time was so great. <laughs> you, you open your eyes and you find there's a bowl of soup sitting in front of you, okay? One big bowl of okay. soup. You're hungry, so you try the soup. And it's amazing. It's spicy. It's sweet. There's this subtle layer of umami that's running through every bite. Years go by, <laughs> and you're eating nothing but this soup. Every morning, a new bowl. And suddenly, you're an undergrad. You're taking classes on soup. And you decide, in a moment of sudden clarity, that you want to devote your life to figuring out what's in this soup you've been eating your whole life. Why does it taste like this? Could it taste like anything else? So you go back to your dorm, you come up with a very basic recipe from the things that you know are in the soup. You know there's onion, you don't see any carrots, etc., etc. And you tweak this recipe every couple of weeks. And as the recipe changes, you're able to reproduce more and more of the aspects of this soup that has carried you through life. But alas, every version is only a slightly better approximation of the original recipe, because at the end of the day, you're never going to get to see it. So this is how science works, and in fact, it's a great analogy for simulations, because a lot of complex astrophysics codes are compartmentalized such that you can add or remove physics modules like ingredients in a recipe to make your soup as simple as you need or as complex as you can afford computationally. Sometimes you can afford a very expensive soup, sometimes you can't. This research is the latest out of the Starforge project, whose goal it is to generate the most realistic star formation simulation ever before, a very expensive soup. And the authors simulated star formation and feedback in a cluster that they've nicknamed the Anvil of Creation. Is this a real cluster or is this fictitious? It's fictitious. Okay. And to generate the simulation, the authors initialized their simulation with a giant molecular cloud, about 20,000 times the mass of the sun, and then evolved its fragmentation and collapse into individual stars over time. To do this, they used a code called Gizmo. It's worth spending a second talking about how Gizmo works because it's really state-of-the-art. It's a hydrodynamics code, which solves equations for how fluid moves at discrete time steps. And hydrocodes have typically fallen into kind of two main camps. One is a set of Eulerian codes, which means that you lay a grid over the space you're simulating and you measure the properties of all the fluid that moves in each square and out of each square. And the second way is called a Lagrangian code, where you divide up your space into pieces of the stuff within it, and then you track those pieces of the stuff as they move around within your space. Two different ways of thinking about a problem. It's a great way of thinking about the difference between those two schools of thought. Yeah, so it turns out in the way that you code them up, these look like completely different codes. And sure. Gizmo is really interesting because it's based on what's called an arbitrary Lagrangian-Eulerian method, which means that it's this weird fusion of Lagrangian codes and Eulerian codes that bypasses a lot of the limitations of either one. 
And because of that, Gizmo is able to achieve higher accuracies and resolution than many of the predecessor codes that were used to answer this question. I used Gizmo for my first year project at Yale. I used Gizmo during my (laughs) gap year at Los Alamos. Very cool. Gizmo is embedded within Starforge. This is just one of the tools that they use to do the star formation simulation. Right. So Starforge is this kind of overarching project, and they use the code Gizmo to achieve their goals laid out in the Starforge project. Okay. Okay. So to really get these simulations right, in the eyes of the cluster, stars really only matter in terms of their feedback with the rest of the system. And so they model stellar feedback with unprecedented resolution in this model. They include protostellar jets. They include multi-wavelength radiation from stars as they're forming. They include stellar winds. And they also include mass deposition and energy deposition when a star explodes as a supernova. All these pieces they have going on very, very accurately for each of the stars that they simulate. And the three main observables that they sought to reproduce in this project were the star formation efficiency, which is just the fraction of total gas that gets converted into stars, which we know from observations. The stellar initial mass function, how many stars form within different mass ranges in a given cluster. And the stellar multiplicity rate, the fraction of stars that are bound up orbiting other stars in binary, triple, or quadruple star systems. Is that really an important metric? So it turns out the stellar multiplicity rate can differ a lot depending on the star formation model you consider. And it's fairly well measured from observations for certain nearby clusters. And so it's now used as like this common metric against which to reproduce in simulations. Interesting. So all of that to say, all of this tied together, the authors successfully reproduced all of the major observables relative to the data compiled from previous studies, which has never been done before for a star formation simulation. But I thought you said this isn't a real cluster. So what are they comparing it to? Right. So that's a really good point. So the stellar multiplicity rate and the star formation efficiency, they have those data sets compiled from a couple different clusters, and they're assuming that they're general enough that this is just a property of forming star clusters and not specific to one cluster. I see. Now, the stellar mass function is a really interesting one because actually it's been empirically measured for different star clusters, and the stellar mass function has been found to be different for different clusters. And people have come up with lots of different explanations for why this might be the case. They thought potentially it's just inherently different based on the environment within which a star cluster forms. But this simulation found, this is something they didn't expect at all, high mass stars above about 10 solar masses finished accreting the majority of their mass forming, basically, nearly a million years after the typical star in the cluster. And this is something that has not been thought to happen before. And so they propose in this study that potentially, if you observe protoclusters, with an absence of high mass stars, and you say it has some weird uh, initial mass function, it might not be because of the intrinsic environmental properties of that cluster. You may just need to wait longer because the high mass stars take more time to form. You might just not be seen. Is there a reason that they would take longer? They did not venture a guess as to why that would be the case. Okay. I just want to make sure I understand this. So they did a 
comparison to known clusters. Mm -hmm. But in this case, they're saying that their simulation revealed something that the known clusters don't, which is that the high-mass stars form slower. They're saying that we observe clusters with a dearth of high-mass stars. And right. some people have just argued that you're just not going to form high-mass stars in those clusters because of whatever con specific configuration of that cluster. But they're saying that this simulation suggests, it's not verified yet, but it might be the case that that cluster is still in the process of forming high-mass stars. They just take longer than everything else, which is not a hypothesis that's been proposed before. High-mass stars also just explode and die much more quickly, right? So they're arguing that as opposed to having them all just to form faster, they actually just form much slower, or it takes longer for them to initially be created. It takes longer for them to initially be created, yeah. What's interesting is that they did simulate supernovae in this study, but they found mm -hmm. that only toward the very, very end of the simulation did supernovae have any impact at all, and in actuality, that was really only when the star formation rate of the cluster had pretty much concluded, had pretty much dropped off. And so the supernova had minimal impact. Okay, well, it sounds like a really promising result. I'm not sure that I understand the way that it's all been tested <laughs> to make sure that it's valid. Because before you can say, you know, our, our new model predicts something that is not seen in the universe, you, you ought to be pretty darn confident that your simulation works right. Uh, I'm sure they are. I'm just not sure I understand it all. Yeah, I'm wondering, are they just trying to match general properties like star formation rate, etc.? Okay, so it's not trying to match any individual cluster, although presumably you could, right? But it would just be like fine-tuning where all the stars form, etc. Yeah. Exactly. Then you would wonder to what extent you're matching because of the specific setup of the particular system versus like a general property that's common to multiple clusters. Yeah. I will say yeah. that this paper, I mean, they, they caveat, they say... There are no egregious discrepancies with observations. And, and, <laughs> oh, that's and, and usually, Nothing egregious, which okay. Which sounds bad, but usually there's at least one, like very egregious difference between a simulation and an observation. And, and here they say, mm -hmm. at granular levels, we are able to match everything that we see in nature. And so now we need to devise more sensitive probes of uh, star formation in these clusters. Well, that's a very promising result. Yes, yeah. yes. It's very exciting. They're not trying to argue that they've solved everything. Of course, there's lots of work to be done yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure not. But being better than all of the prior models, I mean, that's a pretty big improvement. Definitely. Right. And it's the first work out of Starforge. So I'm assuming we'll be seeing lots more exciting stuff in the way of star formation from them in the next couple of years. Oh, so that's a completely new set of simulations. Correct. Oh, that's so exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. Cool. We shouldn't move on before I mention there's a 4K video of the stellar cluster forming, and it's incredible. They put it up on YouTube, mm. and we can link to it in the show notes. It's really gorgeous. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think I see our entremet on the horizon. Looks like it's time for our bi-weekly sound feast of the cosmic dinner table. Yum. You mean smells <laughs> like. Is this a space sound, or can <laughs> yeah. I just hear my stomach rumbling? Yum. <laughs> 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 All right, feast your ears on this bad boy.
What do you think? It sounds like something from spacecraft data. Definitely. But I'm trying to figure out what. I feel like typically our space sounds, you can distinguish them between like sonification of an image, which sounds very orchestral and beautiful and regular. And then like something mm-hmm. that has to do with counting statistics that is like very directly mapped <laughs> onto a pitch and just has a couple little pips. I think it's a mm. Poisson statistic instrument in situ somewhere. <laughs> I don't know where they put it though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some icy moon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> uh, what's the iciest of all the moons? Like Europa? Which one has the shell? <laughs> Triton is pretty cold. Oh, yeah. Well, because it's way out there. We haven't yeah. had any spacecraft there, though. No. All right, I'll tell you. This is Ganymede. Mm. Ah, close. Nice. But specifically... We're listening to the magnetosphere of Ganymede. Ganymede's the largest moon in the solar system and the only one with an internal magnetic field that gives it its own magnetosphere that is kind of within the Jupiter magnetospheric system. Wow. So that makes Ganymede a really interesting object to study. And Juno did a flyby last summer, June 2021. And so two of the instruments were able to pick up measurements of magnetic fields and waves, electromagnetic waves emanating through the magnetosphere. And so when you hear the pitch changing, that's entering different chunks of the magnetosphere where there's a higher density of charged particles and radio wave activity. This was a really, really big event for Juno. Mm. Um, This had been long looked forward to. They got some absolutely gorgeous images of the surface. Um, And people are really still going through this data to understand how Ganymede works. This is certainly not something that's well understood. So just to be clear, am I understanding it correctly that the pitch of the sonification corresponds to the charge density at that point when Juno Cam is flying through? So the pitch is the frequency of the detected radio waves. And the electric field is represented with the volume, I'm pretty sure. Got Mm. it. Okay. It's so cool that this is like a magnetosphere within Jupiter's magnetosphere, within the sun's Uh magnetosphere. (laughs) If Ganymede was not orbiting Jupiter, which is orbiting the sun, if you just had Ganymede's magnetosphere, that's completely isolated, if it would sound the same or not. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Well, so it's it's actually, Ganymede goes in and out of Jupiter's magnetosphere, because Mm -hmm. when it's at the head of the magnetosphere, it would be outside, and then when it gets in the magneto tail, it'd be within. So it's mm-hmm. possible to be observed in both places. I don't know where it was when Juno flew past it. Mm-hmm. So we might actually be able to think about that. But one of the weirdest things that I recall reading is Jupiter's magneto tail is actually lower density of plasma than outside the magneto tail because the magnetosphere effectively shields the magneto tail from the solar wind. So it's actually lower density. Huh. So it might be bigger inside Jupiter's magnetosphere. Yeah, that's so counterintuitive. Yeah. Cool. So there is your little palate cleanser. Yeah, my palate is cleansed. That was a great outfit. <laughs> that was so cool. 
So this brings us to our main course, Milena's bite about a lovely planet meal. Oh, planets are always the main course. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we have for episode 49. Astro Sound Bites would like to remind listeners we believe all areas of astronomy are equally good. <laughs> Who's we? <laughs> so this Astro Bite, I feel like there's really a pun in there with the fact that these are Astro Bites also. But I don't have that pun. <laughs> it's not present. It's just somewhere floating. Someone else can find it. We'll simulate it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so this astrobite is called, Hey, You've Got Some Planet Stuck in Your Teeth, written by <laughs> <laughs> Catherine Minea. And it's about a paper by Spina et al. 2021 that was published in Nature Astronomy. And this paper is focused on how often stars enjoy planetary feasts so how often they eat their babies their baby planets oh. <laughs> so yeah very reminiscent of like i think it was saturn who ate jupiter or something i don't know in mythology something like that happened anyways <laughs> does it happen in the animal kingdom too there's some animals that definitely eat their children i think if they're starving they will i don't know if they will normally these are hungry hungry stars <laughs> 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 so Fortunately, in the solar system, this isn't really something we have to worry about, at least for the immediate future. So solar system planets lie on really nice, stable, circular orbits. So none of our planets are currently in danger of being launched into and engulfed by the sun. Nice. But there's evidence that other planets might get eaten by their host stars on a pretty regular basis. When planets form in their protoplanetary disks, their cores are primarily made of refractory elements. So those are elements that have high condensation temperatures, and they tend to be more in the solid phase at the temperatures that you get in protoplanetary disks from 500 to 1500 Kelvin. So a lot of the material in the solar system that is rocky is made up of silicates. So these are sort of metal-like materials that have silicon, and you might have other refractory elements like aluminum and calcium, for example, um, that are in high abundances in that type of material. Whereas, by contrast, you can also get volatile materials. So this is the reason that comets end up sort of having tails that fly off of them when they get close to the sun is because they have volatiles that are present and that then go into the gas state when they get too close to the sun. So these volatile elements are much more likely to be in the gas phase and so they're not really what make up at least the cores of these rocky planets. And so when you form a planet then it tends to at least at its core mostly be made up of these refractory elements and it's more enriched in refractory elements because those are sort of denser and they're able to stay in the solid state in order to accrete into these planetesimals that then build into larger and larger planets. Generally, your disk is going to be comprised of the same material that the star is formed from, so it all comes from the same molecular cloud. Uh, but again, these planets tend to be comprised of more refractory elements, so that means if a star engulfs a planet, then it should be enriched in that type of refractory element. So instead of showing the same abundances that you would see in the initial protoplanetary disk, it will have a higher percentage of these refractory elements in it instead. Presumably you could use stellar spectroscopy to get a sense for how enriched with refractory elements a given star is. Yeah. 
how do you even begin to make a comparison? Yeah, so hmm. you can you can compare stars with other protoplanetary disks, but the problem is that those protoplanetary disks don't necessarily have the same composition as the star that you're interested in. So you have you know different stellar types that are going to add complications into the mix. You're going to have stars that form in different locations. And so it's actually pretty hard to tell whether a star is enriched in these refractory elements relative to its own protoplanetary disk, because you can't observe that same star at different points in time. And is it the case that if it has, if this star has engulfed a planet, then it's already past the point past which it would have dissipated its disk, so you can't just directly compare for one given system the disk and the star together? Yes. I don't think you can get composition of a star that still has its disk around it. When you're trying to get the spectra, then you would also get the disk within your spectrograph, and so I don't think you could actually distinguish the two. I wonder if you could play around with like edge-on versus face-on configurations of systems, but yeah, anyway, yeah. it sounds very difficult. Yeah, yeah, it, there might be some way around it, but I think it's pretty hard to actually sort that out, and it's not actually yeah, clear true. that the planets would be engulfed while the disk is still there anyway. So it might be something that would have to happen after your gas is dissipated, and then there's some dynamical evolution that launches the planets inwards. Right. So there is actually one special case where we can compare pre- and post-engulfment compositions directly, and that's in stellar binary systems. So in binary star systems, both of the stars were born together in the exact same environment, so they're bound together. They came from the same molecular cloud, they were born at the same time. And because of that, they should, all else equal, be chemically identical. And there are two different potential reasons. You might have differences in the chemical abundances observed for the two components of your binary star system. One would be you know, a physical event, like if one of them ate a planet and the other one didn't. And the other would be there are some parameter degeneracies that might show up if you look at stars of different types uh, and try to model them. So what these authors do to try to get rid of that potential problem is they only look at stellar binaries where both of the stars are the same type. Specifically, they're focusing on solar type stars. They're never going to be exactly the same. So what's their tolerance? They use stars that were between about 5,000 and 6,400 Kelvin. And they actually did that okay. for comparative reasons as well, because there's this break at about 6,000 to 6,200 Kelvin called the, the craft break, where stars that are above the craft break have these radiative exteriors. And so they have kind of a different structure than the ones that are below the craft break, where they then have convective exteriors. And so you can sort of compare where you should actually be able to see more easily these refractory elements if they're present in the stars that don't have convective exterior. So the hottest stars, it should be easiest to see any differences in because the convection is going to really rapidly mix everything. So if you have a planet fall into your star and it has a convective exterior, then it just quickly gets mixed into the rest of the star, whereas that's not as true for the hotter ones. So you can sort of compare those two different populations. So were you saying it's easier or harder to detect the planet if it's uh, fully convective? It's harder. If it's fully convective in the exterior, then the refractory elements get mixed into the core much more quickly, mm -hmm. and so they don't stay at the surface. And what we're observing is the surface. Okay. So when you do spectroscopy, you're looking at, well, like where 
the opacity goes to one, but like effectively the stellar surface. And right, so right. you're not going to be able to see what's happening deeper in the star. And yeah. what we want is to be able to see if this star ate a planet in its semi-recent past, then there should be some enhancement of these elements that's present at the surface because the planet fell in at the surface. But over shorter timescales, it gets mixed into the rest of the star and then it gets diluted for the convective exteriors. It's interesting to me because my reasoning would have been the opposite, arguing that like if an event happened further in the past and the refractory elements had started to sink toward the center of the star, then upwelling created by the convective currents would potentially reveal a signal where one would not have been detectable before. I think the issue is that these planets are just so tiny compared to the stars. Mm. So it sounds like a very specific set of circumstances need to hold true in order to detect a signal like this. Potentially you need a massive enough planet that you see the signal. It was engulfed recently enough that you still see it on the surface of the star. You need a particular type of star. Is this feasible? Did they do it? Yes. So, so you know, you might, you might expect, oh, well, maybe this wouldn't actually be detectable and you shouldn't see any differences. But they actually found a surprisingly large percentage of their samples showed these chemical differences between the two stars. So of their 107 wide binaries, they found that about a third of the sample showed chemical differences of at least two sigma between the two stars. And the binaries with hotter stars were more likely to show these chemical differences because of this difference in the structure above and below the craft break. So that's consistent with what we would expect. And that is sort of suggesting, you know, this all physically is making sense in the picture of what we would anticipate if these planets were indeed being engulfed by these stars. And the authors also looked directly at in order to try to compare directly the refractory versus the volatile elements, they looked at the elemental ratio of iron, which is a refractory element, over carbon, which is a volatile element for these pairs. And they found that in the binary pairs that were just chemically different, the metal-enriched components were also higher in this ratio of iron over carbon. So this suggests that the refractory elements are actually enhanced in these stars that were tagged as being chemically peculiar. And the peculiarity actually is well accounted for by saying they're just enhanced in refractory elements relative to their neighbors. So what the authors are claiming based on this is that about 27% of sun-like stars that are in wide binaries, which is their samples, so they use wide binaries so that they could easily make sure that they have clean spectra of each star separately. And 27% of sun-like stars in those wide binaries show evidence of planetary engulfment. That's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. <laughs> That's way more than I would have suspected, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's crazy. Like, that suggests that a quarter of all stars have unstable planetary systems, and these stars are eaten regularly. That's the big question. Do the wide binaries extrapolate to the rest of the stellar population? Was exactly my question as mm -hmm. well. For single stars, could you argue the same thing? Yeah, and it probably depends on how the what the mechanism is that launches the planet into the star. Because if it's something like the Kozai leadoff mechanism, then that might not extrapolate to single stars. But right. What is that? Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> the Kozai leadoff mechanism is this hierarchical three-body dynamical mechanism where you have three bodies and they 
trade off in their orbits eccentricity and inclination. Oh. And so if you trade off eccentricity and inclination, you can actually get to the point where like a a planet orbit might get so eccentric that it just spirals in and gets eaten or something. Cool. Um, so it's possible that that's actually the reason we're seeing engulfment in these systems and that it's not extendable to the single star systems, but it's not really clear exactly what is launching the planets into the stars. What they're saying is just a lot of stars, at least in these systems, seem to be eating planets pretty regularly. Very neat. That's wild. Yeah. It's super interesting. I I was really fascinated by this study. I looked into the paper in more detail. I was like, wow, that's so cool. Thanks for bringing us that bite. Yeah, thanks for listening. I had a really great time reading it and reading the associated paper, so... It was a lot of fun to prepare this episode. It sounds like it opens a lot of questions into where to go next for this research. It's fascinating. Oh, yeah, definitely. The cutting edge of research. Something about a knife. I'm very bad at food puns, but there's something there. Oh, the cutting the cutting edge. <laughs> the cutting so I'm going to cut yeah. this segment short so we can move on to our one-sentence summaries. Alex, why don't you go first? With a splash of protostellar winds and a dab of outflows, our stellar soup is tasting pretty darn good. But a chef's work is never done. Oh. What about you, Melina? Twin sun-like stars that are identical at birth can drift apart in their properties if one of the pair has a tasty and long-lived snack. And it looks like a quarter of that population has just had dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Oh, man. I like it. All right, so now I hope you saved room for dessert. (laughs) Oh, always. You know it. (laughs) First question. In the history of stars, we know there have been different populations based on metallicity. That is, the first stars had no metals, the second ones had some more metals, so on and so forth. Would that be true about planets as well, and how would we find out? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I mean, we do know that hot Jupiters are more common around metal-rich stars. And it does make sense that the environment that planets are formed in is going to shape the properties of the types of planets that form. I don't think that's something that we actually definitively know yet, but if you do these studies where you compare the stellar compositions with the types of systems that surround those stars, so this is something that I'm pretty interested in my own work, you might be able to actually pull out some of these trends and figure out around what kinds of stars do we tend to get smaller planets, around what kinds of stars do we get bigger planets, and then it's quite possible that that population is going to actually change over time. So as we get more metal-enriched stars, then we might just get more planets of certain types and fewer of a different type. So I think that's also pretty interesting in figuring out, you know, where does the solar system lie in this spectrum? Did we happen to live at a particular time where our star was just metal enriched enough to create the types of Earth-like planets that we see? uh, Or is that something that we expect to be very common in the future? I don't think we have a solution to that yet. Completely agree. Yeah, took the words right out of my mouth. I think potentially you could distinguish between the different formation mechanisms of planets hosted around stars based on those host stars' metallicities. Mm. think that Melina explained it perfectly. I'll just add that there's an astrobite on this topic. It's called More Metals, More Planets, based on a paper from 2019 that's investigating mm. this exact topic. Mm, okay, interesting. 
So what is our general impression on food analogies in astronomy? (laughs) (laughs) The real discussion question. Oh, yeah. Do we like them or is this distracting? That's an interesting question because I think it can be helpful to, to some extent, it's useful to have these like interesting names. Like there were, there was the koala that was a galaxy or something, right? That we talked about before. Koala was an F-bot, a transient event. The koala, the camel. The cow. Mm -hmm. They can make astronomy a little bit more, you know, exciting and palatable to the general public in ways. Palatable. Palatable. (laughs) (laughs) And so in a way, I think that's really useful because it's good to, you know, make sure that science is accessible and that we're not just using crazy jargon that nobody will ever understand or ever be excited about. But at the same time, it might be a little confusing in ways. At the same time, we're humans and humans like stories and humans also like food. So when you can make it a story and also food, then I don't know, I'm sold. (laughs) (laughs) I think I would tend to argue the other direction. I mean, we've talked a little bit about the problematic naming of like strangulation of star formation in a galaxy there are certain connotations that we associate with processes when we name them with these really like primal aggressive uh, terms like this where we see the universe around us as the wild west this fundamental primal environment that we should go out and tame and learn about i'm just saying eating sounds a little bit more tame than engulfment which is usually what we use for planets Right. I mean, in this Hmm. study, right, they called it engulfment, right? Which, Mm -hmm. pros and cons, I guess. But uh, that's kind of why I like, Will, the way that you've structured this episode to to seem like like (laughs) fine dining cuisine, because I feel like it it approaches these terms, which could be seen in this really like rudimentary, like scarfing down light to to, like, which fork would you use for this planet versus this planet? (laughs) I think it's like a really fun play on it. Yeah. What do you think, Will? I mean, we can get a little overboard with the cute names and analogies sometimes, and it just becomes a little bit much if the whole astrobite you're writing or your whole paper is trying to make this analogy work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that being said, eating is one of the better ones. I, I agree. Engulfment's just, it's not a great word. It, it implies malice and. Mm-hmm. Eating doesn't imply as much, I guess, but (laughs) maybe a little. I think eating's also maybe one of the more inclusive analogies that you could make, because I know sometimes like idioms will be used in papers, and then if you're not from that culture, it might not really be obvious what it means, and it doesn't feel good to be left out of a joke, but people eat in general, you know? (laughs) Food is Mm -hmm. somehow obtained by body. (laughs) (laughs) there's also such a mass and and size hierarchy in astrophysics so it makes sense to make the comparison to like a food chain like the smaller things get eaten by the bigger things i think that's inevitable the circle of life or non-life last question what is the most food-like object in the universe I was going to say a neutron star for all of the different types of pasta that comprise it. All the ah. nuclear pasta. Yeah, you've had a you've had a neutron star <laughs> dense pasta. That's the that's how poor of a chef you are. Mm. So Collapsed your kitchen and the surrounding galaxy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the greatest contribution that Italians brought to fine dining: neutron star interior. Mm. I don't know. I think 
dust, cosmic dust, probably has a similar consistency as grated cheese. I knew you were going to bring up dust. <laughs> There's not a dust fact associated with that comment, is there? No, I'm out of dust facts. I think you guys missed it, but earlier when I said the circle of life, after I said the circle of dust, nobody oh, got yeah, it. I did miss that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to cut it. Both <laughs> okay. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> We'd like to thank you for dining with episode 49 of Fine Dining Experience. We hope you enjoyed your meal and will write us a favorable review on Yelp. Or maybe Apple Podcasts, Spotify, <laughs> Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, or Audible. Thanks for eating, and don't forget to tip your waitstaff. And keep your mouths to the cosmos. Finish your cosmos or no dessert. <laughs>